Good morning, everyone. Over the past few weeks here at TCC, we've been harvesting grace from the fertile fields of the book of Exodus. Specifically, we have seen God use several devastating plagues against the Egyptian society to reveal his magnificence and to rescue his people. Now, one thing that's always tough with the Bible is reading about an ancient situation and figuring out what that has to do with your life. How do these plagues relate to COVID-19? How does God rescuing the Israelites compare to God saving you or your family? What does Pharaoh's actions have to do with you? Today in our study, we come to Exodus chapters 10 and 11. Here we see the plagues of locusts and darkness along with the threat of the final plague of death. As we look through this section of the text, I want to show you three things. What God reveals about himself, what he reveals about you, and what he reveals about salvation. So let's jump right in. First, take a look at the story of the locust plague found in Exodus 10, beginning with verse 1. Right at the beginning, God reveals something about himself. Read along with me in your Bibles. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I might show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians, and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. Now, let's understand what God is saying. In verse 2, God says, I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians. In verse 1, we see two ways in which God dealt harshly with Egypt. First, he hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he sent monstrous plagues upon their society. Now, you may think, hang on, I don't like to think of a God as acting harsh. This doesn't send me to my happy place. Well, even though we've discussed this already in our sermon series, we can say again here that God has a broad purpose in bringing skin disease, hailstorms, and frogs on the Egyptians. The theme of the first 14 chapters of Exodus is that God is building a salvation history for his people, a rescue program that includes harsh justice towards Israel's oppressors. At the end of the Exodus section, in chapters 14-4, God states his intentions clearly. There he writes, And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. So what we need to know here is that God hardens hearts, and he sends harsh plagues so that God himself will get the glory. In the locust story, Back now in chapter 10, verse 2, God says the same thing in a different way. He says, As you see me met out my justice, know that I am doing it so that you may know that I am the Lord. That you may know that I am the Lord. So let's sum it up. What do we learn here about God? We learn that God orders harsh things so that you may know him. On Tuesday of this week, I had the privilege of speaking with one of our members here at TCC. This person was humbly sharing the harsh emotional pain of dealing with a shattered, close relationship. And my heart broke for him. 
But then they shared how in the evening, in a special, irregular way, God met them in a sweet, intimate prayer time. Why would God ordain such an emotional toil on the soul for this member? That you may know that I am the Lord. Now let's broaden this out to other incredibly tragic events in our culture. While we love our public officials and police officers, it's a mammoth tragedy when they abuse their power to cause pain and death, especially to minorities. Also, even as I speak, the death toll from COVID-19 wreaked havoc globally, especially in nursing homes among the elderly. We watch as small business owners here in our state are brought to their knees because of the economic collapse. To all of this, we ask, why God? Why? And to you, he gently answers that you may know that I am the Lord. Now, there's also something subtle in these first two verses here about people. In verse 2, God says these stories of his power are to be told in the hearing of your son and your grandson. Now, why would God want these stories to be repeated at bedtime and around the campfire? Here's the reason. People tend to forget God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously said that in the midst of life's toughest battles and temptations, Satan does not here fill us with hatred of God, but with forgetfulness of God. And I think this was certainly true of the Hebrew people. Only a few chapters later, they forgot how God had rescued them and they begged to be returned to slavery. And this escalates as they enter the promised land. In their forgetfulness, they build a temple to Baal. And these temple prostitutes are eventually seen bathing in the blood of their dead king. Oh, how we forget God. Here's a list of some simple questions to ask yourself in light of this text. When you go to work tomorrow, how might you forget God? As you scan the internet tonight, how will you forget God? When you strive so hard for your work-life balance, in what way might you forget God? Now let's look here in the text to see God's salvation. After warning Pharaoh again, God gives the grasshoppers. Look in verse 14. The locust came up over all the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt. Such a dense swarm of locusts has never been before, nor ever will be again. They covered the face of the whole land so that the land was darkened, and they ate all the plants in the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. Not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field through all the land of Egypt. Now this judgment descends upon all of Egypt and all who have forgotten God. But in his mercy, in response to Pharaoh's plea, God relents. Verse 19 tells us that God turned the wind that brought the locusts and swept them away. The great Lord who brought the calamity need but snap his fingers to work his salvation. You see, this is indicative of how God continues to remember his people, even though they have forgotten him. And I'm so thankful that though you forget God, he doesn't forget you. In Jesus Christ, the ultimate expression of God's Exodus-type glory, God remembers you. 
Jesus was born poor, lived holy, died exposed, and raised triumphantly because he remembers you. And today he is calling you to come to him and repent, to trust that he will satisfy you with his divine presence and his gentle care. And take hope. If you're a child of God, know that Jesus isn't a tiger waiting to pounce because you're prone to forgetting. He's not a stern teacher slapping your hand with a ruler. Instead, as writer Dane Ortland shares, since Christ is perfectly holy, the purer of heart, the more it is naturally drawn out to help and relieve and protect and comfort, whereas a corrupt heart sits still and indifferent. So with Christ, his holiness draws his heart out to help and relieve and protect and to comfort. Now let's move from the plague of insect critters to the plague of darkness. First, let's see what this story reveals about God. Now read in your Bibles what God says in chapter 10, verse 21. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. Now, I remember hearing this story when I was younger and thinking, you know, compared to all the other plagues, this one's not so bad. I can handle some darkness. Even today, my six-year-old Asa seems to yearn for darkness, always asking regularly to play hide-and-seek in the dark. So what is God saying with this darkness? The plot kind of thickens when you consider that most Bible scholars see these plagues as intensifying as the story continues, climaxing in the tenth plague of death. So this is the next to the last one. So what's so intense about darkness? Well, I think, I think you find the answer in verse 23. Read with me there in verse 23. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. God, in this one sentence, is describing social distancing. One reason the darkness is such a bane to society is that it strikes where locusts and frogs and hailstorms do not. This darkness halted relationships. People did not see each other, nor did they leave the house for three days. Here we see that God deems relationships vital. That's what we're learning about God. He deems relationships as vital. He's so convinced of the social needs of people that his second most harsh plague is to strip these relationships away. Needless to say, we now find ourselves in the social darkness of COVID-19. For most of us, work relationships are different. Leisure and social ties are severed, and vital networks of friends and families have been cracked. As we perhaps enter into a season now of re-engaging with one another, I hope you can remember the high priority God puts on relationships. I'm reminded that as Jesus sent out laborers in Luke 10, he sent them out two by two together. Paul tells us in Galatians 6, 2, that we fulfill the law of Christ by bearing one another's burdens. And as we navigate through this season, let's prioritize the relationship that had been stunted by COVID-19. God deems relationships as vital. Now, 
but see what this darkness plague reveals about people. As we've seen throughout all the plagues, conversations between Moses and Pharaoh rise to the forefront. Here, Pharaoh finally agrees to let God's people go if and only if they leave their livestock behind. And when Moses objects, we see Pharaoh's rage in verse 28. Look at verse 28. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me! Take care never to see my face again, for on the day that you see my face, you shall die. Now, Pharaoh's specific objection here targets Israel's ability to worship according to God's ways. He wants the animals. No animals means no sacrifices. And you get the feeling that Pharaoh is hedging his bets here. He doesn't see the full import of his rebellion against God. In fact, if we jump back to the locust story, we see that even in his brightest moments, Pharaoh's glow is fairly dull. When confronted with his own sinfulness, Pharaoh says, way back in verse 16, if you look there, Pharaoh says this, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now therefore, forgive my sins, please, only this once, and plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. Uh, now the language of only this once reflects his earlier statement that in chapter 9, 27, where he states, this time I have sinned. As in, I have only sinned this one time. So the overall portrait here is a man whose sin shakes an entire country, and yet he woefully underestimates its consequences. Now this pattern tracks all the way in the Bible backwards to Adam and Eve, and it also extends forwards to you today. You must know that you will tend to downplay the seriousness of your sin against God and against others. I'm reminded of the quote from the famous frontiersman, Daniel Boone, where he said, I've never been lost, but I must admit to being a mite bewildered a few days. I'm afraid we have the same underestimation of our own sin. Perhaps we see this mo most clearly on social media. Writers Laura Whitler and Emily Jensen dissect the question about our behavior on social media. Here's the question. Will I love people or will I leverage people? And here's where they write. At its essence, leverage people, leveraging people puts pressure on them to do or be something for our benefit. While scripture exhorts us to freely serve others, places like Galatians 5.13, leveraging looks for ways for others to serve us. Leveraging can lead to clickbait titles, embellishing the truth, intentionally preying on people's felt needs, or photographic misrepresentation. This group's image bearers together seeing them as stats to share, a representation of popularity, a source of networking, or a salve for your own low self-esteem. And it fails to acknowledge their value as individuals. God's image bearers are not a resource to be consumed. They're human beings to value and to serve. Just as we don't like being hustled or persistently peddled to, we ought to gener generously love others. Now let's realize together 
that we might be underestimating our own sinful tendencies as we post things on Facebook and Twitter. May we instead strive to love as Christ loved us. Now, we also can see God reveal something to us about salvation in this darkness story. Notice that while all Egypt was plunged into darkness, verse 23 tells us that the people of Israel had light where they lived. God was saving his chosen people, and their salvation was expressed as having light. Likewise, as we read about the darkness plague, we begin to understand that this story has literal and metaphorical import. The literal darkness prefigures the coming darkness of death. And throughout Scripture, darkness represents spiritual death. In Acts 26, we see the Apostle Paul sharing that he preached the gospel to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins. In 2 Corinthians 4, we read the gospel is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The Exodus plague of darkness is to remind you that salvation is a light. So to us, this plague is a call to action. Jesus himself makes the charge in Matthew 5, 15. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. Think about this, mothers out there. Have you ever made a child a birthday cake with some candles and then go to present it to the child and then slam a trash can over it? That's crazy. At my house, what we do is we make the cake, we put candles on it, we take a picture, we hold it up, we sing a song. We don't snuff out the candles early. And Jesus says the same thing about a lamplight. You put it on a stand, and it gives light to the whole house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus knows that if you share the gospel in love, it will circle back to the glory of God, the same glory that's revealed in these plagues. So take your candle and go light the world. Now, as we roll to Exodus chapter 11, we immediately note that something is different in the text. Here we have an entire chapter devoted to the threat of the final plague. So instead of going to the next plague, the author pauses and gives us something to think about as God promises what will happen. Read in chapter 11, verse 1 with me. Here the Lord said to Moses, Yet one plague more will I bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. And when he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. This is God calling his shots. It's like he's stepping up to the plate and telling you he's going to hit a home run, and then he knocks it out of the park. Things like that build trust. That's a player you want to bet on. And now look at the next verse, verse 2. God says, speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Now, in a bold move, God tells his people to ask the Egyptians 
for some bling. Crazier still, the Egyptians oblige. My golden necklace? Sure, go ahead, take it. And now why would God do this? Because later down the road, God would use these metals in the making of the tabernacle. Such foresight and provision, again, is going to build trust. So what God is revealing in this story is that he is worthy of your trust. How will an enslaved people one day build a structure in the desert that needs eight tons of gold? Well, God has the Egyptians reach into their own pockets and give freely their gold away. Now, author Halim Su wrote this about the story of Abraham in a, a work called The Gospel Project. Here, Sue writes this. He tells the story of Abraham standing in the gap between two pieces of a sacrificed animal, and he's asked to trust God. This is when God was making a covenant with Abraham. Listen to what Sue writes. He writes, now, what about us? It sounds great for Abram that God came down and gave him that reminder. But what about those of us in the gap right now? We're tired. We feel like we're hanging on by a thin thread. We don't know in our minds that God will keep his promises. We, we know that, but it's uncertain. But every day that passes in the gap seems to loosen our grip on that trust. Can't God give us something just as he did with Abram? If he would just give us something to help us remember that he's faithful, then maybe we could make it through. Well, God answered that question 2,000 years ago, not with the blood of bulls and goats, but with the broken body and spilled blood of his only son. When you find yourself in the gap and starting to grow weary, remember the covenant. Let your heart be overwhelmed by the greater reminder that God has put before you, his crucified son, so that you never have to wonder if he loves you and if he'll come through. The same God of Abraham is in this plague story. And in this story, he's calling you to trust him. Now, what is God revealing here in chapter 11 about people, about yourself? Now look at the end of verse 3. Here we read, Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. Now, this statement is amazing when you consider Moses' backstory. So here's a guy who was born into a persecuted minority people group that was so oppressed that Moses was to be killed at birth. Talking about infanticide here. But he was spared. As God would have it, he was raised in a royal court. However, that all went south when he intervened. You see, he saw an Egypt, Egyptian man beat up a Hebrew man. And in his zeal, Moses killed the Egyptian to stop him from beating up the Hebrew man. But when the Hebrews saw it, they feared him for his brutality. And when the Egyptians saw it, they wanted to kill him as a murderer. So no one thought that Moses was great. But now he's back. And we read, everyone thought he was great. From the common man to the government official, Moses is esteemed. Why? Because when God is with someone, he matures his people through pain. Through all these painful experiences, 
Moses has grown up. I remember once comedian Jerry Seinfeld, who's now in his mid-60s, he once said he couldn't imagine going to a therapist unless that therapist was older than 70. Why do you think that? Well, he knows that people tend to ripen through the hard lessons of life. And I want to give you this hope today. God is using your hardships to mature you. Or to use language of our text today, God is using your hardships to make you very great in the Lord. Now here's a question. What area of growth is being exposed in you as you face your current trial? Where might you need to change? Trust God or listen to the Spirit. What sin needs repentance? Where should you develop a discipline, straighten out your worldview? What area of growth is being exposed in you as you face your current trial? Now, let's see what God is teaching us here about salvation. In chapter 11, we see God describing the threat of a death plague. The coming destruction is laid out in verses 4 and 5. Read there with me, chapter 11, 4 and 5. Thus saith the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. Now note the emphasis here on the firstborn. Now back in Exodus chapter 4, God told Moses there were two firstborns in play in the story. If you turn back to Exodus 4, verse 22, you'll see that God instructs Moses. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. So what's all this talk about the firstborn about? Where's it coming from? Well, it's a reminder back to the covenant that God made with Abraham of God's love for his people. Here's the deal. God's love for his people is covenant-based. That means ultimately your rescue is based on God's pledge and not your own. When Jesus came, he proclaimed his death was the basis of a new pledge, a new covenant. And God bases your salvation on his pledge to you in Christ. Not on something that you've done, but what he has done for you and pledged for you. Now here... I just want to speak to those who are tempted to think their salvation is based on something we have done. Because when you think that way, and you couple that with a fear that something might happen in turn if you do something wrong, it might make God unlove you. If you're bent this way, I just want to commend the Jesus of the Bible to you. His words in John 6, 37 are a balm. He writes, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. I want to share again a quote from Dane Ortland, where he writes this. What is the beating heart of God made tangible in Christ? What is most instinctive to him as our sins and sufferings begin to pile up? What keeps him from growing cold? The answer is Christ's heart. The atoning work of the Son, decreed by the Father and applied by the Spirit, ensures that we're eternally secure. 
But this is not only a matter of divine decree, but a matter of desire. This is heaven's delight. Come to me, says Christ. I will embrace you in my deepest being and never let you go. For those united to him, the heart of Jesus, it's not a rental. It's your new permanent residence. You're not a tenant. You're a child. His heart is not a ticking time bomb. His heart is green pastures and still waters of endless reassurances of his presence and his comfort. And as we dwell on so great a salvation today from the Exodus narrative, that perhaps we should give the final word to Jesus from Revelation 22. That's where Christ says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robe so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gate. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Let's pray together. God, thank you for showing us yourself in the Exodus. We see a God who knows, who knows that we need him. A God that understands we're prone to forget him. And we see in the Exodus a God who bases his love on his own covenant with us. So God, give us an assurance as we go today. God, lift our hope in you for what Jesus has done and what we see his heart really is in the scripture. Edify us and sanctify us as your people. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you.